0: Before we get started this evening, we will take a few moments to have silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship uh, with the Lord, and that means to confess sin if uh, necessary, and then I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful we can come together this evening. We're just thankful that we live in a country where we have the freedom to study Your Word, to proclaim the truth of the Gospel, that salvation is a free gift, that there's no conditions, there's no strings attached, that the only thing necessary is to trust in Jesus Christ, that by His death alone on the cross and by our faith alone we have everlasting life. Now, Father, tonight as we study Your Word and as we go through a difficult time in the history of Israel, there are many lessons that we can learn from this uh, chapter, from these events, but first and foremost is the lesson that we need to trust in you, and that there are so many ways and so many um, circumstances when we substitute something uh, as a source of life and happiness and meaning other than you, and that we might, especially during this time of Christmas, be challenged to reflect uh, more upon our walk with you, our priorities and as we reflect upon these things to um, perhaps make some critical decisions about our spiritual life in the coming new year. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to First Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8, we've gone through this, done quite a bit of, of background work, uh, just to review a little bit. Uh, tonight, uh, we should cover the rest of the chapter and look at the lessons that God is teaching to Israel in terms of their need to depend upon him. The basic lesson that we see is often that God lets us uh, have our head, as it were, and go our own way in order to teach us that we can't do it our way, that when we are... Um, doing it our own way as the proverb says that there's a way that seems right unto man but the end thereof is death and that often we think that there is a course where we can have happiness we can have meaning and significance and value in life but when we are not walking in obedience with him by the holy spirit then the end result is always going to be a catastrophe and god gives us uh, the lead gives us the freedom to make those bad decisions. So God is going to teach Israel a miserable lesson as a result of what happens in chapter 8. Now, in terms of the structure of 1 Samuel, we've seen that it revolves around three people, Samuel, Saul, and David. The first seven chapters focus on Samuel as the prophet, priest, and judge of Israel, Then there's a transition that takes place, starting in chapter 8, leading to the rise of Saul. Saul begins to decline after chapter 15, and at that point, in chapter 16, David is anointed, and we see David's rise. Now, in this chapter, we've seen that we've just, the first couple of points here, we've already covered the setting where the prophet, excuse me, where the people reject uh, the sons of, uh, of Samuel. As the next leadership, as Samuel has grown old, and they 're corrupt, they pervert the law, they continue to reflect the the, the culture around them and remember we 're still in the midst of this toxic culture of the judges this where moral relativism and there 's so many parallels that we 've seen between what is going on in Israel. Uh, during this time, and what's going on in our world today, not just in the United States, but all over. When uh, absolutes are removed, then something has to fill that vacuum, and what fills that vacuum is man makes himself the ultimate reference point and the ultimate absolute, and something within creation uh, is worshipped. So as a result of their rejection of, of Samuel and his sons, the elders gather to gather to have a meeting with Samuel at Ramah, and they request to have a king like all the other nations. And that's a key phrase, like all the other nations. And then Samuel uh, takes it personally because he sees it as a rejection of him, but he recognizes also that this is a spiritual issue, so he shows the, the pattern that he should take this to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord tells him it's not him that's being rejected, it's the Lord. And then in the rest of the chapter, Samuel will inform the people of all the consequences and how this will burden them financially. And the picture here is that excessive taxation is the punishment. Just think about that for a while. (laughs) That what happens financially when you see a culture going into uh Financial slavery of indebtedness, that's the punishment for bad decisions. And in verses 19 to 20, the people reject the warning. It shows how they are just dead set on their course of action because arrogance is blinding. And as a result of total depravity, when we get enmeshed in carnality and in idolatry, then it uh, creates a blindness in our souls, so they still demand to have a king, even though they know what the, or have been informed what the consequences are and Then the Lord tells Samuel to obey their voice, so this is a picture of god 's permissive will, what he allows to take place in a society in a culture and in an individual lives, because they reject the Lord as a result, God is going to allow them to Uh, reap the consequences the key problem here is that they want to have a king to judge them like all of the other nations now last time i pointed out that what we have in the scripture and this is so important to grasp is that god establishes the divine institutions and if there's a number of different uh, frameworks a number of different grids as it were that that uh, we've gone through that help us to evaluate what goes on in the world around us. And these divine institutions were established by God. They are, as it were, social laws, social absolutes, which God built into the very uh, core nature of human creation. The first is individual responsibility. And we see how this is being rejected again and again and again, In our modern political environment, at the very, at its very core, any forms of socialism or Marxism are an attack on personal responsibility. It is the attempt to destroy negative consequences for bad decisions, especially in the area of, of work and labor and finances. Second divine institution is marriage. And we've seen that assaulted in ways we could not have imagined 30 or 40 years ago with the Supreme Court uh, validating uh, homosexual marriage this last summer. And then family. These are the first three divine institutions established in perfect environment. So if they're necessary in order to provide for the protection and the stability of the human race when there's no sin, how much more significant is it that we protect these institutions when we live in a sinful environment? Now, the fourth and fifth divine institutions, as we've seen, were established after after the flood. The fourth divine institution is government. This is established through the Noahic covenant and God delegating judicial authority to man in what is the most extreme judicial uh, situation, and that is adjudicating a situation involving murder and assessing a penalty of capital punishment. If, if that is, that extreme situation is delegated to man, then all lesser decisions of magistrates flow from that. And that's been understood and argued for, uh, for centuries. And then the importance of nations and national distinctions. And that means establishing, establishing borders, specific territories, sec- national security, and preventing others from entering into Uh, into a, a, a nation in order to protect that national distinction. So we've seen the first three were before the fall, the next two after the fall. Now the question, the issue that comes up in that fourth verse is they want to have a king like uh, like every other king in the fifth verse. So what kind of king did the other nations have? And I think this is important to understand, and I tried to cover this in a couple of points last time, that there are three, assu- uh, 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 three assumptions that are made on the part of the uh, elders of Israel. First of all, they're assuming that ch- a change in government will solve the problems. They know that the society is just in a state of collapse. And it has been for over 400 years during the period of the judges, due to this moral relativism. And as we'll see again and again, the problem is they re- they reject God, and they turn to false gods. And so idolatry is at the heart at, at the at the heart of the whole cultural collapse. That's the same thing. that's true today we have a rank idolatry that goes on and it's the same root idolatry it's a rejection of god and worshipping the creature rather than the creator and so they're they're misidentifying the problem and if you can't properly identify the problem then whatever solution you come up with is going to be is going to be an error and that is a critical thing to understand in life uh, whether you are involved in some situation at at work Some some problem you're trying to solve, it could be an engineering problem, it could be a financial problem, it could be a computer problem, it could be all kinds of different things. It can be social problems. There are a lot of people that can correctly identify what the problem is. Politically, you can come up with a number of political leaders who can tell you what the problem is, but the solutions that they offer are really different And just because somebody can properly identify and clearly articulate what a problem is doesn't mean they have a clue what the real solution is. And if you can learn that, whatever field you're in, whatever the circumstance or situation is, that will be a lesson that can go far in life because there are lots and lots of people who can tell you what the problems are. But that doesn't mean their solution will hold any water. So That's their first assumption. They have a problem, and they think just by changing the government, they can solve the problem. But the government, the kind of government they have, isn't the source of the problem. The second assumption that they're making, the second wrong assumption they're making, is that they assume that other nations have it better than they do because they want to have a king like all the other nations so they're assuming that by following another nation's model that that's going to provide a a solution and we've got people in this country who genuinely are committed to the fact that if we become more like europe if we get have more of a so-called christian socialist form of government then that will solve our problems and they just are totally blind to the fact that, that that hasn't done anything to solve any problems that Europe has. They're in worse debt than we are. They have worse social problems than we do. They are in a much more of a moral morass than we are. But these are not values that, uh, that, that are on the radar for pagans, for those who don't have a biblical framework. So this is an assumption that the elders of Israel are making is that there's a better government out there. Uh, uh, somehow the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. But, and that's true. The grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but it still needs to be cut, and some things still need to be painted, and that doesn't mean that, that their solutions are, are any better. Third, they're assuming that all human government is created equal that that there's an equality there that 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 it just the problem's this government will just get another government so that's those are all assumptions that they're making here now as part of the as part of the second explanation the second point that I made as part of the explanation of that last week i went through two sh- slides that i want to go back over briefly tonight to show uh the basic idolatry that's inherent in this rejection uh, of god so this is the first slide on the left, we have uh, the Judeo-Christian biblical view of God, and on the right side, we have the pagan view of God. And there, these are basically the only two real options that you have. Uh, on the left side, we have at the top God as a personal infinite creator God. As I pointed out last time, the fact that God is the ex nihilo creator is crucial this is why this, the doctrine of creation, a literal, histor- literal creation of Genesis uh, 1, is such a battleground because that becomes foundational to everything that you understand. We'll see that in the next slide. And that this God is completely distinct from the creation. This is unique to Christianity. What happens on the right side, let me finish on the left side, you have God who's completely distinct from, his, from the creation, and man, animals, vegetation, and matter and energy are all created uh, by God, and he rules over them. On the right side, you have the pagan, basically your, your, your pagan view of ultimate reality, that the universe is an infinite, impersonal universe. So it really doesn't give a basis for identifying the importance of individuality and that this whole universe is is included within this circle and God, man, and nature are within that circle. In the ancient world, this was viewed as a a scale of being or chain of being where uh, God is at the top. And he has essence, but everything below God participates in that same essence. And so it's a chain of being. God is not a totally other uh, uh, creator that is completely distinct. He, that that, For example, in the ancient uh, Babylonian myths and some of the other myths, you start off at the very beginning with the existence of something. There's some sort of animal or some sort of mythical creature that exists and the creation is formed from that creature. And that's not any different from the Big Bang Theory, that you have some sort of pre-existent matter that is uh, that, that continues in its existence and then everything sort of develops out of that and evolves out, out of that. Um, And so we're all part of the same chain of being. There's no distinct God. This is what separates Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian view of God presented in Genesis 1 through 11 from all these other uh, pagan deities. Now, what happens is if you exclude the Judeo-Christian view, then God is just sort of a super man he's just a bigger man Uh, man is just a smaller version of god so that man can supplant god because he's just the next one up on the totem pole and man can supplant him and replace him with something that's what's going on here in these pagan ideas of deity and government in the ancient world that, that man can become his own God, and this is the same thing you see, especially in a lot of a lot of Eastern religions. Now, the other diagram I used is this one of the um, of the iceberg, and the po- point on this is that this is what is visible this is the, the, the top ten percent of the iceberg it 's what 's visible, and when we talk about current issues, we talk about politics, you see the debates on TV. Those are the issues that are discussed, but those issues that are above the surface, those issues that are visible, only reflect something that is uh, below the surface, something that is much, much larger, and those issues are usually ignored and they're not discussed. But the issues at the top flow from the bottom, so we have a logical sequence that goes from the bottom up, and it starts... With the foundation for all thought, and at the foundation for all thought, we have certain axioms that are assumed, and they are not necessarily provable, and at least in the sense of logic, and all logical systems all start with certain given axioms. And it begins with our understanding of ultimate reality, which is called metaphysics or ontology. Those are some of the terms that are used. That Ultimate reality is either God or it's eternal, something impersonal, it's matter or energy, or it's just absolute nothingness. And whatever you believe is the starting point, then if you're logical and you develop from that, then you come, you, you, you build your, your system of thought. And the next level is called epistemology, how you know anything. And how you know anything depends uh, on your view of ultimate reality, how you come to learn, how you come to know, how you're able to uh, ascertain what is truth or what is error, what is right, what is wrong, what is just or what is unjust that leads to certain ethical decisions so we look at the world and you constantly hear people making comments about uh society is unjust the capitalism is so unfair i always like what what um, winston churchill said the capitalism is the is is a horrible system it's just better than any of the alternatives so we have we make these decisions, but those decisions of right or wrong, just or unjust, fair or unfair, all come out of a question of how do you know that? Somebody makes a comment and says, that's so unfair. Well, how do you know that? Where do you get this value of what is fair or what is unfair according to what standard? Uh, do you uh, make that kind of conclusion? And so all of this is below the surface, and then above that, we have the kinds of political, national, individual decisions. So what's happening in uh, this situation in Israel is they are making an ethical decision. What's that ethical decision? That that the sons of Samuel are unjust, they're corrupt, they're, per, they're perverted. Now, now I'm not questioning whether they're right or wrong. They're making an ethical decision. And how do they know that? Well, they're arguing from a position of not necessarily righteous truth but of the fact that their own culture their own experience they don't like what is going on and so rather than asking a more profound question about what may be causing the the collapse in their culture they're they're blaming it on the wrong thing they're blaming it on government rather than on the, the the ethical system, the moral relativism that they've developed because they've rejected God as the source of their absolutes. So this just gives us an understanding of, of, um, uh, of what's going on here in terms of supplanting God with something else, and that always comes down to idolatry. So, when we ask the question, "What kind of king did the other nations have?" you look at Egypt, we look at the Mesopotamian empires, you look at Greece, you look at Rome, look at all these different kingdoms. they had a a they had various gods, they had polytheistic systems, and these gods were all part of nature, weren 't they? They were all these nature gods they're all part of that scale of being uh, that that 's there. And so they, they are, uh, basically creatures of their own imagination. Now, when you take out God as the king in that, uh, in that vacuum, the state is going to move in. You look at Egypt. Egypt identified the Pharaoh was identified, uh, exclusively with the state. Whatever Pharaoh wanted, his power was, uh, was absolute and he is a divine being he's viewed that way so it's it's ultimately religious and then you go over to the mesopotamian kingdoms and they were the same way they viewed their kings as manifestations of god sons of god something uh something related but the state becomes identified with the person of the monarch the person of the ruler and so the state becomes in a, in effect their God, they are worshiping the state, and this becomes uh, seen in the uh, in the Roman Empire when the Caesars began to uh, claim uh, deity for themselves and that they are to be worshipped as God, and that brought about a conflict in early Christianity between Christians who would not uh, declare Caesar to be God. So what happens is that the state then, when you throw out God, the state becomes the ultimate determiner of right or wrong, the ultimate determiner of meaning or value or significance in life, and then claims ultimate authority over the lives of the people. Now, in the history of this nation, because we understood a theistic framework, a theistic worldview, a biblical worldview, that we have founding documents in the Declaration of Independence and in the uh, Constitution that sought to establish, recognize the rights of the individual in this nation as being given these inalienable rights through their creator. It is no mistake that the the, the writers of these documents clearly understood God is the creator, and he was the one from whom these rights derived. They did not derive from the state. But what has happened uh, historically over the last 200 years is that has eroded as this nation has come under continued uh, satanic assault through the ideas of the enlightenment the working out of those ideas in terms of what was going on in the uh, in the 19th century as they began to reject uh, biblical authority and substitute I- empiricism and rationalism uh, for biblical authority is that the government begins to grow in terms of its power. By the end of the 19th century, you begin to see, uh, the erosion more clearly in certain Supreme Court decisions, and that becomes more manifest in the early part of the 20th century, where the courts begin to, uh, begin to determine uh, ultimate truth, and there 's a shift that takes place, especially under uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and other progressive uh, judges in the early part of, of the of the twentieth century at the same time, you have the rise of progressivism. you have both a conservative progressivism under uh, Theodore Roosevelt and a more radical progressivism under under uh, uh, fdr but this is what shifts begins to shift the nation. Uh, and has a, a, an impact that we're feeling today. This just didn't change change overnight. But but this kind of attack on the state uh, uh, or using the state as an attack against God goes back to uh, goes back to the Tower of Babel, as I pointed out uh, before, with the kingdom of, of Nimrod. So when the state starts to grow in its power. It goes into competition with the church. It goes into competition with any system that declares that there is a source of absolutes and a source of right or wrong that comes from outside of creation by which the state itself can be judged. And once you reach a point where the state itself begins to uh, limit uh, the expressions, the free expression of uh, of religion, of Christianity, then you, you get into a dangerous situation. This is what started happening. We started seeing this judicially uh, in the 1960s, and since then it's just become uh, become worse and worse. But this is the result of. Uh, a, st- a state that does not want to be judged by an external standard and has already rejected uh, the absolutes from Scripture. So, a couple of things for you to note. Um, let's go to verse. Let's see if I got this in. No, I did not put it in here. Okay, uh, let's look at a couple of couple of uh, verses. I don't have them up on the, on the, on the screen, but that's okay. Uh, once you remove God from being the ultimate ruler, this violates the first commandment in, of the Ten Commandments. Remember, we're talking about Israel. They're under the Mosaic Law. The first commandment is described in, or is given in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, one thing that we should observe there is that when the Lord defines himself, identifies himself, he lo- locates that identification within uh, within a historical space-time event. He is the God who brought uh, them out of the land of Egypt, who brought them out of slavery. Now, what's interesting is when you get into these false uh, Systems of idolatry that that show up with the uh, with the golden calf, with Aaron building the golden calf while uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and then later when the northern and the southern kingdoms split, and that uh, divinely authorized tax revolt that occurred uh, after the death of Solomon then then Jeroboam recognizes that if all the people in the north and the ten tribes are always going down to Jerusalem to worship God, that that is going to undermine his authority in the north, or he thinks it will. And so he establishes two competing religious uh, centers in the northern kingdom, one in the southern part of Samaria in Bethel and the other one at the far north at, at, at Dan, at what is now uh, Tel Dan. And so... What does he do? He builds, has a golden calves constructed in both of those locations, just like the golden calf uh, that Aaron built. And how does he identify that golden calf? He said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And so they, they are, it's a definite competition against the God of the scripture. So the first commandment is in Exodus 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. So God is claiming exclusive authority over Israel. And when they say that they want to have uh, uh, another king, it's another king other than God, they are supplanting God with something else. So what they are doing is they are Making going to make their state or the, as represented by the king as the ultimate God, the ultimate source of meaning and happiness. They're looking to the government to provide security. They're looking to government to provide uh, protection and happiness and stability rather than looking to God. This is known today as state worship. Uh, it's called totalitarianism. It's also called statism. And it takes place whenever a a state, and in, in modern times we've had a, examples such as Germany under Hitler and um, uh, Italy under Mussolini, uh, Russia under Stalin, uh, China. When they assert their authority, then uh, the law, the, then the government becomes the ultimate power, ultimately becomes becomes uh, God. Ayn Rand said, that the political expression of altruism is collectivism or statism. In other word, and which ultimately goes to some form of, of, of socialism. She said this holds that man's life and work belong to the state. Now think about that. That man's, in, under statism, man's life is totally controlled by the state. And uh, his work, the production, his production is ultimately at the disposal of, this, of the state. So it belongs to the society or to the group, to the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of him in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal collective good. And that's a pretty good definition of statism. It's an assault on the first divine institution, which includes uh, labor and it's an assault on uh, individual responsibility and accountability before God because the state becomes the ultimate arbiter of of, uh, of, of truth. The state seeks to control po- property, wealth, and social policy. The state comes in and starts redefining what marriage is, redefining what a family is, uh, redefining what, what justice is, redefining what truth is. And so the government then becomes the ultimate uh, source of everything in society. When it comes down to that, it violates another issue related to the Ten Commandments, and that is the Eighth Commandment in Exodus 20, verse 15, which says, You shall not steal. Now, the implication of that commandment is that there is God recognizes the right of private ownership of property. If, you, if you're if you prohibited to steal, then that is a recognition that there is uh, ownership of property, that there are things that are yours and things that are not yours, and that you do not have a right to take that which somebody else has purchased or worked for or earned and make it your own. So that is embedded within that Eighth Commandment, the principle of the right of the individual to enjoy the fruits of his own labor. The Tenth Commandment also uh, has this principle embedded in it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is the, the goes against the basic principle of Bernie Sanders' socialism. Socialism is built on coveting whatever your neighbor has and giving the government the right to steal from those who have produced or earned or, or created something and then to give it to someone who has done nothing. So these two commandments, the Eighth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment, provide the basis, the biblical basis, for the right of private ownership of property what 's interesting in Israel is that the 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 ownership of property is based in God himself. God is the ultimate owner of all of the land. He is the one who uh, owns the land He is the one who bestows the land upon uh, upon the Israelites, and He is the one who determines how to distribute that land. So as the ultimate owner of the land he has the right to he alone has the right to control uh how the property is used and that is determined via the Mosaic law that get and and God is able to bestow and recognize individual rights on on uh, and responsibility for the use of, of, of property leviticus twenty five twenty three says "The land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. This is what the Lord says. He says, For you are strangers talking to israel you're strangers and sojourners with me then psalm twenty four one says that the earth is the lord 's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. so when you look at creation from god 's viewpoint from a biblical viewpoint then the the individual has the right of ownership and the right of production. In socialism and Marxism, the state claims to be the ultimate owner of the land. And uh, just as a side note, one area in which this breaks down in uh, our American system is that uh, in our system, the government has the right to tax property. If you look at the Mosaic Law, there's no property tax. There's a right to taxation that's given the government. But the government can't tax property because the taxation of property ha- has, is built on the idea that the state is the owner of the property and has the right to, the, to, to determine how the property is used. So this is one of the flaws that we have uh, in our particular system. Now, we develop a conflict because under a human viewpoint concept of government, the government owns the land. And the more power and authority that the government has, the more the government tends to view itself as God. So in the development of modern statism and totalitarian governments in the extreme, the government that owns the land ultimately owns and controls the people. The more power we give to the government. This is what the Tenth Amendment is designed to prevent, is that all of the power, according to the Tenth Amendment, All the power that is not specifically given to the federal government is to be reserved to the states and to the individual. So once you get away from that, then the federal government becomes the plantation owner, and all the citizens are just slaves on the government plantation which is where we are today. This is why it's so important to to attack the uh, the whole tax code uh, because this needs to be changed. It all accrues to uh, more and more power to the federal government. So the ultimate issue in all of this that I'm pointing out is religious. It all has to do with either the worship of God or the worship of government, the worship of man and this is where we are today in every nation in this this world we had a 200 year blip in this country that is an exception to the rule of history where we understood the government was completely delegated by god and served under the under the authority of god so what we see is as a picture of this in the ancient world is that that they're doing the same thing they are attributing uh, divine powers are going to attribute divine powers to God. So in verse 6, we read, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel goes to the Lord. He goes to pray to the Lord. Now, in this opening line, the thing displeased uh, Samuel is kind of a pusillanimous way of expressing this. The text uh, of the Hebrew says, And this thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. He identifies this categorically as something that is evil. Now, evil in the Bible is not just a simple abstract term of something that violates the righteousness of God. It is something that has has greater legs to it than that. A couple of verses from Judges, remember this is the same time period, uh, give us the idea of how evil is used predominantly in the Old Testament. In Judges 2.11 we read, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now how is evil used in that passage? It's used in reference to idolatry. Evil is worshiping something other than God. Evil begins with the violation of the First Amendment when we're worshiping something other than God. Judges three seven, the same thing. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. And so we see this terminology where they abandoned God and they served the idols. We'll see that same terminology here in uh Uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then later on, I referred to this event already when Jeroboam led the uh, divinely authorized tax revolt and the 10 nations split off in the north. And then he set up these two idols, the the golden calves in one in Bethel and one up north in Dan. And then God sends Abijah the prophet to confront him and to indict him for this idolatry. And in the midst of that, uh, God says, But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So what is the essence of evil? In this passage, the essence of evil is idolatry. It's looking to something other than the creator God of the Bible as the source of meaning, happiness, and stability in in life. And whenever we substitute anything for God, we're in some form of idolatry. So when the text says that they wanted a king like the other nations, they wanted to have a government that is identified with a false religious system and that 's what the solution is when we look at the political landscape today and we look at the the different options that are being presented, all what you have to drill down through that iceberg illustration and say what becomes the ultimate source of meaning in and uh, stability and security in life? Is it going back to God or is it going to some element of creation or is it going to some element? Uh, of the of the government and that's what we see is that we're looking to government to supply what only god can supply and that is pure idolatry now in verse seven god is going to clarify and identify these issues for samuel make it, he makes it very clear the lord said to samuel heed the voice of the people literally listen to them do what they say to do twice God is going to say this in these verses. He says it uh, in verse 7, and he says it again in verse 9. So when God repeats himself, you have to pay attention. He, the voice of the people, and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So the main problem that God is saying is, isn't there rejection of monarchy per se? Remember, the final form of government is going to be a monarchy. Jesus is going to return and be established as the king, the Davidic king in in Jerusalem. So the final form of government is going to be a monarchy, but it's going to have a perfect monarch, the God Man who is who is without sin. The problem here that we see is uh, not a rejection of mo- uh, of a one uh, of a theocracy, but it's a rejection of God Himself. And it's looking to man and, and a human government as the uh, ultimate source of of uh, stability and of happiness. So they're looking to something other than God. They're replacing God and biblical va- values and biblical norms and standards uh, with those of man. They're rejecting the creator God as the source of life and a source of, of meaning. Now, verse 8 says... God says, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day. Notice how in both the first commandment and the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and again here, and numerous other times in in the Old Testament, the pattern of identification of God always goes back to that redemptive work in, 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 in Egypt. That's why when Charlie Clough developed his framework, what he was recognizing was that if you go through the scripture, there are events that are constantly referred back to in later circumstances. And you have creation, you have the flood, you have the call of Abraham, which is referred to again and again throughout the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. And you have the Deliverance of Israel from, from Egypt. These are crucial events around which everything else in the Bible hangs. They're, they're, you can use an illustration like a clothes closet. And you've got all your clothes lying on the floor. And if you're going to organize your clothes, that is organize your life, organize your thinking, you have to have key, key coat hangers. And these key events provide the biblical framework on which you hang everything else in the scripture and you get all your clothes off up off the floor and you can organize your thinking and organize your life. So that's what we see here. God, again, referring back to uh, what took place uh, coming out of Egypt, that he refers back to this Exodus event as a historical space-time event. It's not a legend. It's not some sort of poetic fiction. Remember, I talked about this in... in uh, in the first Peter class on Thursday nights a couple of times, how you have modern scholars. Now, usually the evangelicals are not questioning the historicity of the Exodus events. They're going back and questioning to some degree some of the uh, uh, historicity of the flood or how they're interpreting uh, Genesis 1 through 3. But God refers to these things as a literal historical space time events. Now, in this passage, we read, um, God says, According to all the works which they've done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day which they have forsaken me and served other gods. Remember, I pointed that out from uh, the passage in, in Judges that they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. This is the typical language that is used, is when you abandon God, you forsake God, then what happens is you will automatically serve other gods. The default position is always to worshiping something other than God as a source of meaning and stability in life. So in verse 9, God says, now he, therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, the things that are going to be outlined in the coming verses ultimately boil down to economics. Now, since I just talked about the situation in Egypt, in the, in, in Egypt, the whole state was embodied in the person of the Pharaoh. And that a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that had its roots in what happened during the time of Joseph. Now, you all remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and the Midianite slave traders take him to Egypt, and eventually he gets thrown in prison under a false charge of attempted rape. And then he's he's finally recognized because he can interpret this dream that the pharaoh has. And the dream is a warning that there are going to be seven years of of plenty, and then there are going to be seven bad years. And so the pharaoh elevates him to the second highest position in the land. And there's going to be this terrible famine, so there's seven years of, of prosperity they can use to prepare for it by storing up grain. And so he builds the granaries and everything uh, in order to provide for the, the, the bad years of the famine. Well, by the time you get halfway through the famine, what the text says is that the people are running out of money. They no longer have the ability to buy the grain that's been stored. And so the pharaoh enters into a deal. And the deal is, in exchange for their land, their ownership of the means of production, in exchange for the ownership of the land, he will give them food. And so by the time you come out of that period, all of the land, all of the means of production in Egypt is owned by the Pharaoh. So the state now controls everything and controls all the people uh, from cradle to grave. Now... What we see here is, is, is a, a, in the warning that's going to come up, is a abuse of the, of, of taxes. But I want you to note that there's not an authorization from God to rebel against the king for the abuse of taxation. And it's going to get exceptionally bad under Solomon. And God is going to authorize for other reasons the ten northern tribes to separate because he 's judging Solomon because of his idolatry, but the the power to tax is not going to be um, is, is not going to be a basis or the abuse of tax is not going to be the basis for um, for rebellion now in verse nine, uh, just something I want to point out in terms of um, uh, in terms of the grammar here, you have this phrase usually translated something along the lines of you shall solemnly forewarn them or you, you shall seriously warn them, something of that nature. And this is the, um, this is an interesting construction in Greek where you combine what's called an infinitive absolute along with the basic uh, uh, imperfect uh, tense of the verb. Now, the reason I point this out. Is because in um, in Genesis uh, 2:17, God warned Israel, I mean, warned Adam and Eve, rather that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now that was wrongly translated because of this verb. What you have is two verbs next to each other. One's an infinitive absolute. One's a imperfect tense and it's a hebrew idiom that intensifies the strength of the verbal action that's all it does it was some of you learned this i learned this i read it many places that 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 should have been translated dying you will die that is a that that's an abuse of the hebrew and there was a theological conclusion made from that that there were two types of death indicated there a spiritual death and then a physical death but that that abuses the whole idiom. You wouldn't translate this "testifying." You will testify, and think that that's going to be two different kinds of testimony. That's this idiom is used on almost every page of the Old Testament, and it's just intensifying the strength of that of of, of the the verb. And the basic verb here is a verb that means to, it's a legal term that means to warn or to testify with reference to stipulations of a covenant treaty. So what's going on here is that Samuel is being told to function in his role as a prophet to represent the Supreme Court of Heaven in bringing a lawsuit against the people and reminding them of the covenant stipulations in the law. And that's what is being being indicated here. It should be translated something like this. You shall legally testify to them about their obligations related to the covenant and the judgments or the policies or actions of the king who will rule over them. So this sets the stage. This is a legal courtroom action Against Israel, warning them legally of what is going to happen and how God is going to bring uh, judgment upon them, so what we see here is that at the end of this this warning, God uh, prepares them, and he says, "Look, this is what you can expect. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself, and the Lord won't listen to you. Think about that: a nation or a person." makes their own personal decisions. They make their own free will decisions to take on a course of action. And then when they are reaping the consequences for their bad decisions, for their sinful decisions, God says, You're, I'm allowing you to reap the consequences of your personal responsibility, and no, I'm not going to take it away. These are the consequences. You're going to suffer the condemnation of your own bad, uh, bad decisions. And in this case, the, ta- the heavy hand of the government is the punishment for people's failure to live according to uh, the first divine institution of individual responsibility. The more a people give up their personal responsibilities to government, which is what people in this country have been doing for over a hundred years. The more people give up their responsibilities to government, the more the government is going to take and the more the government is going to control. And then when we get to the point where we are today, what God is saying is you're reaping the consequences of your bad decisions. And no, I'm not going to listen to you. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen in the U.S., but that is what happened with Israel. Now, that's not the end of the story, because what God's going to do is he's going to give them the desires of their heart, which is a, which is Saul as king, and they're going to reap those consequences, and finally, they are going to turn to the Lord, and that is what's going to make a difference. God's going to first give them the desires of their heart, and they're going to have, be in misery And then God's going to give them a man who is after the Lord's own heart. So he spells out the consequences. First of all, there's going to be a military conscription that's going to be instituted and enforced. Uh, The king in verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen and some will run before his chariots. He's going to build uh, the military industrial complex and he is going to, uh, take, take your sons, uh, take your daughters, and force them into uh, some sort of service. There's, second, he says there's going to be some sort of compulsory uh, labor uh, conscript for state service. If they don't serve in the military, then there'll be something else. He says he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So what we're seeing here is he's going to build his own wealth, his own power base. The state is going to grow out of control, and everyone will be dependent upon the state. This is where we are today. I think one, I read today, one out of every uh, three Americans is dependent upon a government check. Almost uh, 50% of the labor force somehow is related to working for uh, for the government. third thing that he describes is that the young men and young women, as well as animals, are going to be uh, conscripted. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. It's not just your sons. Uh fourth thing he says is that uh, the state will take your property, uh, both the land and livestock. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. So he comes in and the the land now, uh, the means of production is going to be taken over in ownership by the state. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So he's going to take from those who should, who own it and give it to those who've done nothing to deserve it. Fifth, he says, because the, the state is now functioning as God, it will demand a tithe just like God. The word tithe means 10%. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to your officers and servants. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, there were three different tithes. There were three different tithes. There were two annual tithes and one that was every third year. And that was all that God put on the people. But now he's saying, no, the government's going to come along and take another 10%. And even under Sam, uh, under Solomon, he takes more than that. In six, he says, uh, he will take, uh, your employers, employees and laborers to do his work for him. And this, this can be done even through excessive taxation of, of income. Uh, he will, you will And then finally, verse 18, you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So that's the punishment. The growth of a domineering totalitarian nation state that takes freedom from its citizens is the punishment. You now a lot of times we hear people who say that homosexuality is going to be punished by God. Homosexuality according to Romans one is a punishment. You look at passages like this the oppressiveness of a government is the punishment for a failure to take a personal responsibility. And we see a picture of how the people's heart is hardened. After they hear all of this, what's their response? Nevertheless, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they say, no, but we'll have a king over us. We're not going to listen to what you say. We're not going to believe you. We want to have a king like everybody else because we have rejected God. Negative volition and arrogance blinds people to the truth and and grabs hold of them so that nothing else matters. It blinds them to reality. They, verse twenty: that we may be a, uh, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're looking to government to solve their problems rather than looking to their own personal responsibility, their own personal decisions. This reminds me of Romans chapter one in romans one twenty one to twenty three we read that be, that after saying that the evidence of God is is visible to everyone his his invisible attributes are clearly visible through his creation there 's the indictment on mankind for rejecting God because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exemplified in what's going on with Israel. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Idolatry. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And in the case of 1 Samuel 8, they're worshiping government instead of the creator. Now, 1 Samuel eight twenty one. 21 Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice. Do what they said to do. God is, this is God's permissive will. He's going to lower the boom on Israel so that they reap the consequences of their rebellion. So Samuel says to the men, every man go to his own city. Again, back to Romans 1, and 25. Therefore, God, the result of this is God gives The human race over to the results of their bad decisions. God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's the judgment that God gives them over to. This is the pattern we have in Scripture, whether it's national or whether it's individual. One last example. In the wilderness generation, the people whined and moaned and complained about the, the 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 fact that they were eating the same old manna every single day, and so God gave them quail, and He brought so much quail, and the people ate it until they were sick. And the comment on that in Psalm 106:15, "This is how God works," says, and He gave them their request. God answered their prayer. He gave Israel what they wanted in first. 1 Samuel 8, but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they wanted. He gives you freedom. He gives his nation freedom. He has given us enough freedom to where we have turned our backs on God. And the result is he's going to give us everything we want and send leanness to our soul. And we will reap the consequences just like Israel did of our bad decisions with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to look at these passages and to understand that this warning is true uh, today in our culture just as much as it has been throughout all of history. But nevertheless, your grace is real. And just as there were prophets who prayed uh, for their nation in the Old Testament, so we to pray for this nation that you would be gracious to us. And that people's eyes would be open, that you would enlighten people to the truth of your word, and that you would expose through failures those who are running for office, those who seek to do harm to this nation, those whose policies would be destructive to this nation, that you would cause events and circumstances to expose the flaws and the failures of their ideas so that people can be awakened to the truth. And we pray that there would be a turning to you as the true source of freedom, the true source of happiness and meaning in life, and away from the things, the details of life, and that we might not look to government as the solution, but recognize, as the scripture says, and identifies that government is often the problem, that the solution is to walk with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.